Again, God's holy and inspired word from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, just through verse 14, God's word. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So how do you respond to blood? Does the sight of blood make your head spin and you feel like passing out? Or are you more the doctor type where blood is no big deal? Well, blood is a fluid that refuses to be ignored. If you see someone bleeding or a drop of blood on the floor or blood stain on the shirt, you take notice. For as blood is inside of us, it's the liquid of life and health. But when blood drips or runs outside of us, it can be the herald of death. Yes, blood is one of those frank, frank realities that we generally avoid bringing up in polite conversation. And yet it is an inescapable part of the weightier matters of life and death. Thus, it should come as no surprise that central to our salvation and our spiritual life is blood. Though not all blood types are equally valuable. Thus, Hebrews clarifies for us the chief place that blood holds for us and particularly whose blood is uniquely precious and effective for our redemption. So in the first part of chapter 9, we got a mini-tour of the Old Testament tabernacle, which delivered way more bang for our buck than we would have ever guessed. For in those antique pieces of sacred furniture that these pictured and prophesied about the very glories of heaven and our eternal blessings of being in covenant with God. And yet, just as these masterpieces were set before us, they were locked up behind closed curtains. We got a sneak peek of heaven, only to be denied entrance. This is kind of like showing your 12-year-old their dream McLaren and then locking it up until they're 21. The T's bordered on being mean. And yet, all these regulations of separation and exclusion were imposed only for a time until the time of the Reformation. Those barred doors and warnings of death were put in place for a season. They had an end point, a terminus, which was this age of Reformation. But when is this Reformation period? Has it already come, or are we yet waiting for that sweet day? Well, our curiosity is not kept waiting. As it's dropped in the very next line, when Christ appeared. The laws and the fences of the Old Testament, those of separation, held until 
the Reformation time when Christ came. The coming of Christ, then, identifies the dawn of this Reformation age. The birth of Christ was the delivery date for Reformation. And the author explicitly uses here the title Christ. Note he does not pen the name Jesus or Son of God or even Jesus Christ, but merely the Christ, which is the grand Old Testament office of the Messiah. The pages of the Old Testament are littered with the promises of the coming Christ. Hebrew mommies and daddies had babies in hope that their kid could be the Messiah or the mother of the Messiah. Yes, the saints of old set their faith like flint upon the Messiah. Their hope ached and panted for the rising messianic star. The Christmas that never came did arrive with the appearing of the Christ. Besides, Messiah slash Christ is a title that means anointed one, which isn't limited to the king, to a son of David. Rather, this title also belonged to the high priest. Yes, another Old Testament name for the high priest was the, uh, the anointed priest. Thus, the first line in verse 11 could be translated as, when the anointed one came as high priest. It's almost like ordering chai tea. You want tea tea? Well, so also the Christ priest arrived. The messianic priest appeared, which marked the advent of reformation and the grand opening of the sure promises of God. And when Christ as the high priest came, note he says that the good things also have come. In the debut of Christ, good things also launched, which means that these goods are here. They are in present existence. But what are these good things? Well, as you'll remember, one of the author's favorite words is better, and that which is better belongs to this category of good. And so far, the better or good things have included the new covenant, better promises, a certain hope, a superior salvation, and Jesus as the better mediator. All these goods and more sprouted and bloomed with the coming of the Christ priest. In his own terse way, the author here is caroling about the advent of Jesus Christ. But how did Christ usher in such riches for our salvation? Well, he did it first by ministering in the greater and more perfect tent, the one that's not handmade, nor is it part of this creation. Simply put, after touring the earthly replica of the tabernacle, this perfect tent is the genuine sanctuary in heaven. The sons of Aaron served in a man-made shrine that belonged to this earth, And so, like this creation, it was fading, limited, and temporary. Effective ministry, though, needs to happen in the genuine article, that heavenly temple. Being being of the tribe of Judah, Jesus couldn't actually labor in that toy-like Jerusalem temple. But being after Melchizedek, he was qualified to serve in heaven. And yet, how did Jesus get access to the heavenly holy places. 
Well, as we saw last week in verse 7, the Old Testament priests could enter or could only enter the shrine with offerings. They couldn't enter empty-handed, but they had to be laden down with offerings like incense, oil, bread, and particularly blood. Yes, the blood key was primary in order to unlock the veil and to step inside the most sacred realm. Hence, Jesus, too, entered by blood. Like the Old Testament priests, Jesus had blood in hand. But unlike those Old Testament priests, his basin was not filled with goat or cow blood. Christ didn't have to slaughter some bull or billy goat to collect their crimson life liquid. Instead, the blood key in his hands, he drew from his own arteries. Yes, Christ entered with his own blood. And what a contrast. For sure, animal blood is valuable. A strong bull and a healthy goat was a solid asset. The farmer raised that beast, he fed, fed it, cared for it, and he kept it from getting sick or blemished. If not sacrificed, the goat or bull could have sired many more. If butchered for yourself, the meat would feed your family for a massive feast. A sacrificial beast was not a meager cost, but compared to human blood, Animal blood hardly registers on the same scale. For example, how many cows is your life worth? If you had to kill goats to save your own daughter, how many would you slaughter? If a man stopped at 20 or 30 goats and said, no more, my girl isn't worth it, wouldn't this be the height of gross negligence? Put a herd of cows between a mama and her baby, and she will slice through them like a Jedi through droids to save her kids, and do so without batting an eye. Yes, human blood is on a completely other scale and value. And yet, not all human blood has the same price tag. Sure, formed in the image of God, All human life is valuable and costly, but sin seriously messes up the market price. For example, how much would you pay to ransom a murderer compared to ransoming your sweet grandma? Does the blood of a rapist or pedophile have the same cost to you than your wife or son? We don't like to talk this way, but we know it's true. And then there's the ultimate appraisal of our blood as sinners. The wages of sin is death. And as sinners, we deserve death, which makes our blood dirt cheap in the scales of justice. Our depravity infects our blood with cancerous viruses and deadly bacteria. And yet Christ entered with his own blood. What is the worth of Christ's blood? Well, Jesus was fully human, and so he possessed the worth of God's image. He, though, was also fully God, and the blood of the God-man breaks the scale of appraisal. On top of this, Jesus 
was perfectly righteous and pristinely holy. And holy blood blows the top off of earthly wealth. Thus, if you were in the hospital and you needed blood, and the doctor brought you two options, you can have sinful blood or holy blood, which would you choose? Well, it isn't really even a choice. The defiled human blood would kill you as soon as the needle pierced your arm. But the holy blood of Christ, what does it accomplish for you? Well, as it says next, by his own blood, Jesus merited an eternal redemption. The worth of Christ's blood purchased an everlasting redemption for you. And what is redemption? Well, to redeem is to buy something out of something else. A slave could, redeem, could be redeemed from slavery. A criminal could be redeemed from prison or execution. Land could be redeemed from debt. The firstborn were redeemed from the temple. And, of course, the exodus from Egypt was the Lord's redemption of his people. Thus, redemption is a comprehensive term for the totality of your salvation obtained for you by the blood of Christ. And it means that Jesus' blood won for you deliverance and forgiveness from all your sins. His blood liberates you from the curse of death. And Christ's crimson fluid transfers you from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light and life. Yes, this is what the blood of Christ has done. Who knew that blood could do so much? And yet, there is even more. The author is just getting warmed up on singing the praises of the blood of Christ. And next, he goes back to animal blood and cites a positive. That bovine or caprine blood was limited, but it could do a few things. Here, the bull and billy goat blood works in conjunction with the ashes of the red heifer that we read about in Numbers 19. And these red heifer ashes were associated with sacrifices. These were not offered for sin. These rituals and sacrifices didn't deal with your sin, but with your impurity. These remedied ritual defilements, which dealt with the body. And in the case of the red heifer, you touched a human or dead human or their bones, which was called corpse contamination. Now, this wasn't a sin, as you had to bury your dead, but it did defile your body, which barred you from the tabernacle until you were purified. And for major impurities like this, you had to sacrifice an animal wash, and wait for a particular amount of time. For corpse contamination, you you were even sprinkled with water and ash, a water and ash mixture. Yet after all of this shedding of blood, sprinkling and waiting, your body did become pure so that you could go to worship. Thus, such ritual purifications were effective. They worked. They took you from being impure to pure. They fulfilled the law so that you could enter God's presence. These purifications didn't touch sin. They couldn't help with anything inside of you, but they did work on the body. Well, if heifer ashes and goat blood can purify the flesh, 
how much more can the blood of Christ do? If the animal blood can do a little, then the holy blood of Christ can work miracles. Thus, the betterness of Christ's blood is further celebrated. His blood is superior. It is more effective. And why? Well, for one, he offered himself. Jesus brought his own blood into the heavenly sanctuary, which means it was voluntary. Jesus willingly and freely sacrificed himself. Sure, it was to fulfill the law, but no one forced Jesus. He wasn't pinned down between a rock and a hard place, which he could only get out of by a begrudging shedding of his own blood. No, moreover, to offer himself varies from the very essence of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was substitutionary. That was kind of the whole point. You brought an animal to pay for your sins so that you didn't perish. The purpose of the sacrifice was to save your life by the animal dying for you. But to offer yourself means you're the sacrifice. There's no substitution, but only execution. And yet Jesus willingly became such a self-sacrifice. He was the priest who laid down his own life. This had never been done before. It was quite unthinkable. But Jesus sacrificed himself to be your substitute. He personally perished in your place and on your behalf. The death was yours, but he paid it as one without blemish. Spotless righteousness and blemish-free holiness was Christ. There wasn't even a whiff or speck of error, sin, or impurity in our Lord. Holy was he, and perfection was his blood. The infinite worth of the Holy Messiah deserved all life and protection. All the angels of heaven were his secret service, but Jesus refused such personal security to go to the cross alone. Moreover, Jesus' offering of himself to God happened through the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit was the means and instrument of his sacrifice. But what does this mean? Now, well, this could be playing off the office of Christ, i.e. the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. Being the Christ, the Spirit equipped Jesus so that he could complete his work. Now, this is definitely true, but there seems to be more here. For one of the unique deeds of the Spirit is to bridge space and time. The Spirit bridge connects two things that's far off. Hence, Christ's suffering to God through the Spirit linked his death on Golgotha to heaven. Jesus died on the earth before he ascended on high. How then could his blood that stained the dust underneath the cross be applied in heaven? By the Spirit. The Spirit was the avenue and conduit that effected in heaven the blood of Calvary. Hence, the descriptor eternal spirit, which Hebrew uses for the realm of heaven and the age to come. But there is another pair of distant things 
namely Christ's blood and our consciousness. How does the blood of Christ reach us and our defiled souls? Again, by the Spirit. As it says, the blood of Christ purifies our conscience through the eternal Spirit. The Spirit brings Christ's atonement near us, even inside of us, no matter how far we are from the cross in space and time. The Spirit is like the IV line that injects the blood of Christ into our veins. And with the Spirit administering Christ to us, his holy blood purifies our consciousness. Those heifer ashes may have washed the body, but the blood of Christ scrubs clean our hearts and our souls. And it particularly sanitizes that chamber of the heart, the conscience, which is the sensory organ of guilt. The conscience feels our unworthiness. The conscience testifies that we are sinners who deserve wrath. Our consciences proclaim to us our condemnation as an agent of God and the law. The conscience keeps a record of all our sins and the judgments we are owed for them. And yet Jesus' blood applied through the Spirit fumigates our conscience from dead works. But what's a dead work? Well, it is a deed that brings death an action deserving execution. Now, of course, such dead works are sins, so these are mortal sins. The Spirit-applied blood purges our hearts from mortal sins, which surpasses the Old Testament. As you may know, under the law, sacrifice only covered certain sins. There was no sacrificial remedy in the law for sins like idolatry, murder, and adultery. If you murdered, the law provided no sacrifice for you, and so you had to die. This is why David prayed in Psalm 51 that he would bring a sacrifice if there was one, but there was no offering to cover David's murder and his wife's stealing. Well, what was not provided for under the law is accomplished for you in the new covenant by the blood of Jesus spiritually injected into you. The atonement of Christ pays for all your transgressions, small and big, minor and heinous. His red blood cleanses our dark hearts so that they are spotlessly clean. It erases the record of debt that stood against us, and it coats us with the life-giving righteousness of Christ. Indeed, look at the grand result of Christ's blood inside of us. We are purified from deadly depravity to serve the living God. We are carried and transformed from the dead to the living. And in the presence of the living God, we can serve, which is the Old Testament word for worship. The purifying of Christ recreates us into pure worshipers of the Lord, and such worship is the goal of our redemption. As Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go so that we may worship the Lord. 
Well, the law never succeeded in bringing the saints of old near to God in worship. Instead, the law raised all those fences and locked barriers to keep the people at a distance. But what the law could not do, Christ's blood does for you. His righteousness flings open the doors of God to you. His sacrificial blood purges you from all sin and death to make you holy. And in a love that drives out the fear of wrath, Jesus then ushers you into the very presence of God to worship him forever. And there is no better conclusion to this story of Christ's blood than for us to worship. Indeed, by his death and blood, Jesus earned the totality of our redemption. It was works for him so that it is grace for us. He died so that we might have life. The blood of Christ finishes your atonement and salvation. And thus the only thing left for us is to believe and to praise. Yes, let us adore and magnify the name and the work of Jesus Christ. May we ever sing thanksgiving to our triune God, offering up to our Lord all our love, reverence, and gratitude. For this is what we have been recreated to do. It's our eternal destiny. And it's our highest good and joy. Now, every Lord's Day and forever. Thus, let us worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with songs and prayers and sweet professions of devotion now and forever, knowing that we have been purchased, bought for a price, the very blood of Christ, because he loved you and he loves you forever. Amen.